This is the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast, but we have taken it over and releasing my latest book that was released a couple years ago, The Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow. This chapter is chapter four, Why Syndications Over Burr or Turnkey Rentals. We're really going to be diving into, yeah, syndications are really for accredited investors and why accredited investors leave the landlord world behind. I'm going to be really diving into some of my personal lessons learned. I started with a bunch of rental properties in Seattle locally, then realized that you move out of state for better numbers in more emerging markets, built up 11 turnkey rentals back in 2015, but eventually sold all those for my portfolio of private equity syndication deals today. And that's really where I think is the place to be as an accredited investor especially if you're working a full-time, high-paid day job. If you guys want to get access to the links to buy the book for about 99 cents on the Kindle version or the five bucks for the physical version, that will really help generate sales and really help me on my next release. If you guys want to write a review, take a screenshot, send it to the team at simplepassivecashflow.com. We'll hook you up with a free e-product there. The next book will really be surrounding how exactly do you climb this glass elevator and skip these steps a lot quicker, what the chapter is about today, jumping over the whole landlord level and just going over that. A lot of investors that we work with these days have never owned rental properties and just are already accredited investors because they make over $250,000 a year. Or maybe they've inherited properties from their parents who did it all the wrong way in the past and really want to jumpstart and take it into this world of accredited investors and beyond. So for that, again, we're going to be dropping, we're about almost halfway through the book and probably over the next couple of months, you'll hear the rest of the chapters, but enjoy this chapter. And if you have any feedback or any thoughts for the next book, or if you'd like to help a reviewer on the next book, please reach out to the team at simplepassivecashflow.com. We can get you an advanced copy on that. And you can feel like you're the inner circle with us going along this journey of releasing the second big title from Simple Passive Cashflow. Thank you all for the support and enjoy the chapter. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Chapter 4. Why Syndications Over Burr or Turnkey Rentals I soon realized that there are a lot of really good deals out there with a higher than 2 to $5 million purchase price. And there was a sweet spot above that and below institutional investors who are getting large deals just to invest a plethora of dumb retirement money, just to appease the retail investors, especially overpaying for what they're getting. But they get in such scale, they hide in the 20 to million, 20 to $50 million range. These syndication deals and private placements target the two to $20 million range roughly to spot out one in a thousand deals that achieve higher returns at a good risk reward profile. I personally focus on workforce housing apartments because of their recession proof properties. When I had 11 rentals in 2015, I knew it wasn't a 
scalable way of investing. And I found my tribe with other high net worth investors who were already investing in syndications and private placements. A lot of these guys were high paid doctors, lawyers, engineers, and other working professionals who were 10 to 20 years older than me. And I realized this high level vision of being a completely passive investor in dozens of deals, putting no more than five to 10% of your net worth into any one of these deals in order to achieve diversification. No, a classic mom and pop investor mistake is to build up to an 8 or 16 units where they have way more than 10% of their net worth into a single asset. Therefore, you know, they're just not diversified. I had a background in rental real estate and I didn't stray from my original goals of cash flow. I targeted properties that were already cash flowing, but maybe there was some sort of a bad management or under market rent situation. Whereas if we just put a little lipstick on a pig and focus in on about four to $6,000 of rehab per unit, enough to change out the flooring, change out the yellow appliances for black or stainless steel ones, playground equipment on the grounds, and freshen up the look without getting to any big construction activities like new cabinets or breaking down walls, this is just enough to bump the rent $100 to $150 on already under market rents. And a lot of times, too, with commercial real estate, which is very different from residential and certainly turnkey investments, the property value is not derived off comparable sales. It's derived off the net operating income. If you can go in there and either increase the income, which is primarily our business plan, and or decrease expenses, you can increase net operating income. And when you divide the increase by the prevailing cap rate for that asset class in that market, That is the difference in value that you have increased the property. This is not market depreciation, which comes and goes, in my opinion, and just kind of luck. This is forced appreciation. Value comes through those people who create value, and value that we're creating is better living conditions for tenants who will in turn pay a little bit more rent. Syndication investing is pulling together passive investor capital so that the operators or your general partners can go after a stronger deal with very low competition. Again, too big for mom and pa investors and better deals than the clunky institutions can't find. Then implement a business plan once passive investor capital is pulled together. Securities laws are triggered no differently than creating company stock. Some syndications are done differently, but for the most part, an LLC will own a piece of property and have title to it. That LLC will be split in ownership with all passive investors based on their pro rata share. All this will be executed through a legal document called the Private Placement Memorandum, or PPM for short. If you've never seen a Private Placement Memorandum, you'll probably be very overwhelmed. It's a pretty hefty document that's over 100 pages in length with a lot of capital letters yelling at you. We typically pay a lawyer $15,000 to $20,000 to put this together and to do our United States securities filings for us. A private placement memorandum does two things. First, it protects the passive investor that the general partners have fiduciary responsibility to not lie, cheat, steal, or run the investment into the ground. Secondly, it also protects the general partner to help prevent disgruntled passive investors from suing should investment performance not be met. You could syndicate capital for any type of business or project, real estate or not. I like to invest in real estate assets that are stabilized, which are defined as 90% occupied or more, so that I can get a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac agency non-recourse debt, and I can implement a business plan while cash flowing from day one. So in case anything happens in the economy, like a recession happens, we'll just continue cash flow. But if things go well, and even if things go bad, we can still implement the business plan of rehabbing units and vacancies naturally arise because we raise the capital to do all the renovations up front because we're property capitalized. And that forced appreciation allows us to possibly even refinance in the interim to strip out equity 
as tax-free distributions or hold the cash in reserves. In 2015, I was transitioning to investing in multifamily syndication apartments when I realized that I didn't know too much about the space. It was very different than owning your own rental properties. I knew this was the direction I needed to head, but it really took me 18 months to really start to put in my first $50,000 on a private placement deal and sign this overwhelmingly large PPM. I paid to be in a group where it got me around other syndication, passive investors, and through paid networking events and building relationships with these people, I often had to get flights and travel out of state to get there. About 18 months went by until I had developed a great network of other pure passive investors that I could rely on for good referrals and information. An internal breaking point came when I had dozens and dozens of people I could rely on, but there were maybe only a few people who were in 20 something plus deals and I had built up the relationship enough to ask these folks, hey man, so how do these syndications really work? Do you really get the cash flow stated in the performance? Does the performance really happen? And for the most part, the answer that I got informally from these folks was out of 20 or so deals, maybe a few of them, we lost a little money, but we didn't know if there was any potential foul play involved. We didn't think so, but we don't know for certain. Those are the bad cases. At the same time, it wasn't a total loss. That's why you invest in deals that do non-recourse debt. That should anything bad happen, barring an embezzlement, fraud, or anything like that, the LPs and GPs are able to just walk away from the debt. So they also said, with those few bad ones, maybe we also had a few really good ones that doubled our money in three years. The majority of deals were right there, where we thought they would be. There should be a 100 to 80% return in five years with little to no effort on their part, rather than signing the paperwork in the beginning. The beautiful thing is redeploying your now doubled funds into more projects and building up a bigger passive activity loss stockpile in the process. If you've been listening to the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast since 2016, you have seen me well change my mind a few times. At one time, I thought buying a bunch of rentals was the way to financial freedom, so you could be that cool guy at the local real estate club with all the other misguided landlords. As I became an accredited investor, I discovered the three-step system that we use today. First, syndication deals where you don't invest with dishonest operators to get better returns than the 401k financial planner garbage. Second step, get passive losses to unlock the tax best practices that the wealthy employ, and last and least impactful, Number three, infinite banking. If your net worth is not yet $1 million, check out my free turnkey rental remote e-course at simplepassacashflow.com slash turnkey. All right, speaking to a credit investor to a credit investor, my one, two, three system is very simple to implement, but it requires plugging into a community of purely passive accredited investors like ours. Join our investor club for more insider access. Go to simplepassacashflow.com slash club. Those who are looking to deploy more than $250,000 their first year or make over $300,000 in annual income or net worth over a couple million dollars should really look into our exclusive inner circle called the Family Office HANA Mastermind, FOOM for short. Learn more at simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. I made the realization that there's nothing in life that is risk-free, but if I, at the age of 30 and just shy of $1 million net worth, could just diversify myself enough, maybe I don't double my money every five years. But if I could grow my money at a 15% IR, I would be on the road to financial freedom and I would be able to quit my engineering job. So that was when I consciously made the decision that this type of investing was for me. I didn't know anything about the tax benefits back then. I was just going about the highest and best returns for my money that had the best risk adjusted profile or sharp ratio, which is just a sort of measurement of risk versus reward. 
I just realized I needed to get into a few syndication deals because that was going to help me develop my network even further to find out additional opportunities. As the years go by, you start to realize that these syndication deals are a superior way to invest. They're stronger deals. There is much stronger force appreciation, especially like a house flip, but these additional benefits. First of all, income derived off the investment as opposed to house flips or private money lending is passive income, not ordinary income. Two, the LP, if you're going into a stabilized asset, you're getting cash flow in the beginning. Normally, the cash flow is a smaller part of your returns where the majority of returns come from forced appreciation. Getting cash flow is nice and in turn, you're deleveraging your investment right off the bat as cash flow checks come in. You can also use those cash flow checks just like you would a turnkey rental or either eat off of or to put towards even more investments. Syndication deals offer better leverage or debt options with longer loan terms of 80 to 15 years amortized over 30 to 35 years. And again, that's one of the misnomers I think I see a lot of people. They're like, I don't want to go into syndication deals because I don't get debt. The debt is actually better and it's better because the general partners put it in their name and you, the passive investor, don't have to put any of that debt in your name, but you're still getting the leverage. Fourth, stronger legal protection as an LP since you're not a managing member of the asset. The general partners are the managing member. They're the ones that make the decisions and they're the ones that get hung should they make a bad decision legally. Number five, better tax benefits due to cost segregations. See simplepassivecashflow.com slash cost seg for more information. And again, check out the tax guide too, simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. Six, and last but not least, larger institutional asset providing more stability and more economies of scale. I think a lot of operators, mom and pop operators out there are buying little office complexes. This building right behind me is the Jacksonville Tower, the old Bank of America Tower that we bought. That's just a big, larger institutional asset. A lot of these two to 300 unit properties, our net operating income is in the six figures per month. Whereas if you own maybe a four unit or 20 unit, it it moves so slowly. And it's just not as robust at these larger assets. I think only downside in this type of investing is potentially investing with a shyster. How do you mitigate the risk responsibly? My solution, once again, was to build my network and to invest with those people who have good investments and people you trust within your inner circle with whom you have invested in the past. By going through all these mastermind groups, I learned a lot of things, including many things that LP investors aren't able to do, which is to underwrite the deals themselves by taking the profit and loss statements and rent rolls and putting it into a proprietary model. This allowed me to essentially decode the code. I could take the data and figure out if the deal was legit or not. When people ask me, how do you decide what deals to go into? My general party line is, well, 50% of it is vetting the people, which is made possible by making connections with other pure passive accredited investors. Some people mistakenly invest off blind social proof. But what also happens sometimes is when operators get a large following, they start to get a little loose on the underwriting. And also the investor splits start to go down and fees go up. This is what I call operator creep. So how do you not get fooled by this? The key is working with a good operator or doing the numbers yourself. But again, like I said, this is not within the scope of most passive investor skill sets to be an underwriting specialist. I would say 90 to 95% of LPs don't know how to underwrite the numbers themselves. First of all, in even the shiniest of pitch decks and webinars, there's nothing in there that tells you the raw data in the first place. It doesn't give you the code to even put into the decoder or model. My personal process to first under write the deal and other half of my vetting process is to spot check these key deal assumptions that ultimately derive the projected return calculations. By determining what kind of assumptions the operator is using, 
I can see how good the deal is and where the operator is at in terms of the aggressive to conservative spectrum. If an operator, for example, assuming rents are going to rise 3% every year, or they are using aggressive reversion cap rates that are lower to say 5.5% as opposed to 6%, I will likely not want to partake in that deal and all deals provided from that operator in the future. Most LPs go around the horn and interview operators which are ultimately the investor relations salespeople or the marketing staff that got hired from college just the other week who are trained in telling LPs exactly what they want to hear. And even worse, just find those operators who are better at internet marketing tricks than a track record at operating successful real estate projects. I think it's a waste of time to make these rounds in this such way. If it were me, I would determine what level of conservativeness the operator runs their numbers on a deal, then go and talk to those who pass the test. I think this is why people like to invest alongside me. Other than our shining personality, that is partially a joke. They do get access to the principal, which is me, the general partner, but more importantly is our level of transparency. I want investors to understand how we run our numbers and therefore understand the margin for the unknown and unknowable that will unfold once a project is underway. Some operators go into a deal where they have to sharpen the underwriting pencil and the airplane only has half a tank of gas at takeoff. I want investors to understand how much gas we have and for them to make the best investment decision. Because once this plane takes off, there's no getting off. We're all together for the ride. A lot of these details on the numbers are outlined in my passive investor syndication e-course for LPs. You're not going to be an underwriting specialist, but these are the things that are important to understand as an LP to at least not go into a sucker deal as I did. And once you get yourself up to an intermediate advanced level through the first few modules, I have a secret syndication video series with the help of my family office clients that you should watch. We develop eight sessions where my students go back and forth on different syndication nuances out there. It took me quite a long time to start to write my first check, but education is important and it will totally allow you to become a better passive investor. For a free guide, check out simplepassivecashflow.com syndication. As I mentioned, a lot of my clients are higher net worth investors who are most likely going to be valuing their time over money more often than not, part of the issues is being a remote landlord is that you're constantly getting abused by property managers and vendors because they have an assumption about you. You're just some rich person out in California, Hawaii, Seattle who has never seen the property before and are just drinking pina coladas by the beach. Most experienced remote investors get tired of getting gouged on pricing and eventually transition into syndications and private placements with the right people. In 2013 to 2015, while building my portfolio to 11 remote rentals, I started to run into this problem. And what really bothered me was that I didn't really have any recourse to prevent this. As an engineer in the construction industry, I knew how much things cost. I know how much a couple of dudes time is worth per their hourly rate. And when I saw a plumbing repair come up to 900 bucks, I really didn't get a good explanation from my property manager or plumber. I knew that was, I knew what was up. Something can be said for having a relationship with a property manager. Some remote investors kid themselves thinking that they go to visit their property manager in Kansas City or Alabama, Indianapolis, take them out for lunch and they feel like they're best buffs for life. No, it doesn't work like that. But what I didn't really like about this whole single point of failure and constantly getting gouged as an out-of-state inv investor, not to mention direct ownership and management of a rental not being scalable. We're mostly passive buy and hold investors here. I think house hacking is for kids. Who wants to live next to their tenant? Cool. If you're some bro or young lady in their 20s, I think that's awesome. That's what I did back in the day. 
And that's what I essentially did in my 20s. I worked on the road on the company's dime and pocketed a lot of money. I moved hotel to hotel every week so that I could save $50,000 to $100,000 out of my paycheck every year to plow into buying more rentals. And that's what really helped me accelerate my growth to where I'm at today. But for a lot of people in their 40s, 50s, and especially those who are married or have a significant other or have kids, I think it's a younger man's thing. There are a lot of tactics like this buy, rent, rehab, rent, repeat idea or burr for short, which I think is another tactic that should only be employed by the lower net worth guys, certainly under a quarter to half a million dollars net worth. The concept sounds pretty sleek. Buy a property that needs a lot of work and at a lower price. Find a contractor to fix it up. Now this is the biggest risk in the plan. Get a bank to give you a new loan for the higher appreciated value, then rent it out, sell, and repeat. I think the biggest thing is when you're doing this remotely and you're wiring over large sums of money like ten dollars to $50,000 or even more to acquire property and put in the capital improvements or the repairs, there's a single point of failure with the people you work with. Most times you're working with an unprofessional person. Today, I try to not work with people who have under a couple million dollars net worth or less as my other co-general partners. The issue that I see with the smaller Burr properties is you're working with these lower net worth people and they may not value the relationship with me as much as they value putting food on the table for their families by running off with my money or skimping on performance. If a contractor is any good, they eventually swim upstream to work on larger homes that have higher profit margins than slumming it with an outer state investor sub 100K property. So therefore, like if people find good contractors, well, are they really good or are they just dumb that they don't move up to the bigger stuff and stop working with an out of state remote investor. I also don't like to really work with people who don't have a college degree. Granted, I don't think college degrees are all that important these days, but at least it tells me somebody has gone through the process of achieving something that often requires four plus years of focus. Of course, that is just my investment criteria, and I believe anybody can choose to be as discriminating as they want when it comes down to investing your own hard-earned money. Don't trust anyone, be smart, mindful, and follow your gut instincts. So many people choose to rely on a lot of other people without even vetting any of this stuff. And what is absolutely crazier to me is that so many of the people who do this are not in the construction industry to begin with. They don't know how to manage contracts. They don't have any background in this field. For me, I used to do this for a living as a construction and civil engineer. We'd always go back and forth about unforeseen conditions and discuss managing the scope and budget timelines with contractors. So a lot of this stuff came as second nature to me. You have smart people like doctors, dentists, accountants, computer programmers to name a few, of course, but many are definitely out of their realm of expertise in a more blue collar type situation of managing construction. The last issue I have with these burrs strategy is that I feel it is a big risk to rely on banks to give you a good refinance via favorable appraisal, which is not necessary in their best interest to you. Overall, I think it's a great way to make a lot of money, ordinary, not passive income in terms of taxes. But I don't think it is a good risk-adjusted return to sustainably build wealth over time. Essentially, you're taking more risks than you should be, working with amateur-level talent, rolling the dice on appreciation, not pure in cash flow. That said, you as an investor need to understand the risk-reward profile and match that with your goals. For higher net worth clients, myself included, being a passive investor in a large deal that exhibits cash flow combined with an institutional quality business 
business plans to incrementally increase the property's rents over time via forced appreciation offers more than enough equity growth while supporting the need to hedge the downside risks and preserve your capital in tough economic times. And I think a question that comes up a lot of times is investors are like, should I invest in now? I used to think that a long time ago, that same question, right? Should I just sit where I at? Should I time the market? And, and then I started to realize like a lot of people, they put us passive investors in the pigeonhole of those people making the mistake back in 2008, right? In 2008, these guys were a bunch of house flippers buying properties, assuming that the properties were going to go up with market appreciation, not force appreciation. So that was w- where their downfall was. And those properties did not cash flow. And the cash flow is what keeps you alive. Cash flow is like oxygen. It keeps you alive in tough time. Now, when you're investing in properties at cash flow, 1% rent to value ratio, better properties, even if a recession comes around, you should be able to hold on to the asset, make your debt service payments and come out of it even stronger. And I think most people invest for appreciation. And I just think that people should separate the two types of investors, the active rehabbers, betting on gambling on appreciation versus the cash flow investors. To me, if you're a cash flow investor, it's always a good time to be buying if it cash flows. Most people will think of it as an aggressive strategy, right? You're always buying. But in the back end, it's very prudent because you're always buying things that make sense that should tough times come around, you cash flow. And this is why we invest in workforce housing because it's an asset class that this country needs more of. The country needs more lower middle class housing. They're not making much more of it. Sure, they're building new luxury stuff and some of that older stuff is getting older. Like in a country that the population is growing, they're not making any more real estate and especially they're not making the real estate for the lower middle class. And I think in the next chapter, you guys are gonna really start to see this all come together. The investing to me is one third of the picture. But when you start to get into the tax and the legal and the infinite banking strategies, that's the other third. And of course, that that last third is a legacy, right? We might get into that a little bit into this book and more especially into the next book that's coming as we start to help more and more clients get to that $10 million stage or at least to the $4.5 million net worth stage. But if you think investing is a big part of it, it is, right? It's a part of the prerequisite, but it's really a small part of the game that the wealthy investors play. It's a small piece of the puzzle. And I think we're gonna start. So stay tuned for the next chapter.